I think I have a way out for us. <laughs> I have some ideas to start, but I, I don't know. Like, what, I don't have a lot of substance. Oh, I just have like, well, a couple. I, like, I, I feel like I, I think I've, I feel like I have a road to draw you out on stuff. Oh, cool, great! I just had some jokes ready. Do you want to tell a joke to start us off? <laughs> start off with that. That's a good way to start. <laughs> I mean, not jokes per se, but just sort of like um, funny anecdotes, funny things. Yeah, observations, uh, observational humor. Oh, yeah, that's right. Anecdotes and observational humor. Yeah, I guess, like, well, one thing is I can't think of anything to be angry about. I think that's part of my struggle. Well, is there a punchline to this, or this is just you're prompting me to to, to go with something? No, I think it's tough. I, I think we were used to, you know, for several years to always be triggered about something, and now we don't really know. Um, and I think a lot of Americans are struggling with this. This is part of their struggle. I, well, okay. I mean, I, this is sort of what I, I did want to maybe push us towards. It's, it's. I, I do think there's. Um, we're in this weird threshold moment right now uh, that I suppose has something to do with the legacy of Trump or whatever, and like, like going into normalcy. But it's also this this return to normalcy out of COVID. I think it's it's kind of disorienting. Um, and I, I've been wondering for like the last few weeks whether whether there's um, there's something more to it than than just uh, you know I don't know like disorientation whether whether somehow like our our permanent expectations and our permanent sort of I don't know touchstones orient like things that we've used to orient ourselves uh, around have just been shifted in such a way that that returning is going to be more difficult? Does that make sense at all? Does that resonate? Yeah. So I think you're right about that, that in theory, everyone is excited about summer and this new post-pandemic era. And there's been a lot of memes about um, white boy summer. No, it's not a racist thing, I don't think. (laughs) I mean, I think it is or something. It's something. Well, okay, just to give some background to listeners about what I think White Boy Summer is about. So Chet Hanks, Tom Hanks' son, he's sort of like the, the black sheep of the family or whatever. Whoa, easy. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's an expression. Pretty sure <laughs> who it's, knows a, anymore? it's a canceled expression at this point. Anyway, go on. So, um, okay, well, he, he released a video a titled White Boy Summer. But what was interesting about it, he's talking about, oh, you know, this isn't a Trump thing. That's not the kind of White Boy Summer we're talking about. No, we're talking about like a woke White Boy Summer. He didn't use the word woke, but pretty much, um, you know, he's talking about rules and regulations for white boys if they want to make the most of this summer and be respectful to people of color and and to women and things like that. That's what I understand it to be. But obviously, people made fun of it and misunderstood it. Um, but it's become like a funny meme sort of thing. Anyway, I guess the more important point is that, um, that you know, everyone, there's all this hype and all this expectation, and we're still learning how to re-enter. I think for some of us, there might be less work to do because we weren't like hiding in a basement for a year like the COVID hardliners were. But if you're someone who was extremely neurotic, um, perhaps understandably, perhaps not, we don't have to go into that. But if, if you were sort of obsessive about this, now everyone's telling you that things are okay, 
but there's this lingering COVID anxiety. And some people are not going to be prepared to be in large groups or to be at crowded bars or things like that. So that could be part of it. But maybe you're talking about it more on like a, a you know, a metaphysical level. Well, I don't know if it's metaphysical. I feel like it's like social organizational level more more than than personal and like anxieties about being in crowds. I like I for the first time uh, last week uh, at the Atlantic Council, uh, our friend uh, Ben Haddad, who runs the Europe Center, uh, where I'm also a member of there, he you know they they we put on a three day um, uh, event about uh, you know US EU cooperation, and it was a great success. Um, and interestingly enough, even though uh, the Atlantic Council itself is uh, the office is still not in any you know, fraction of its capacity. I think the guidance is going to come out and like a lot of places around DC, the opening is going to be partial and only in September, you know, the offices, you know, with with permission or whatever, you can go there. So, uh, you know, they'd set up studios over there because this was a virtual conference. Um, and I went in, you know, I, I had to interview the Greek foreign minister and I went into the studio and, you know, everyone was wearing masks, but it was, it was surprising even to me who... You know, you and I have been not on the, you know, COVID sort of panic and like uh, shaming slash scolding uh, side of things. And it was it was genuinely disorienting, I would say, in a very positive way to be back in the office and to be interacting with people like that, not interacting with friends and BSing about stuff, but but cooperating on a project, you know, doing work together. Now, again, you and I are friends and we cooperate and do work on, on this Wisdom of Crowds project. It's different, though, you know? It's, it's yeah. um, And it was, um, while it was great and I, I w- it was really nice to do that, I was still struck by how, I don't know what, like, maybe, um, yeah, disorienting is the best way, but maybe maybe to even sharpen it a bit more, it felt foreign to me in a way. Like like the habits that I've I've somehow internalized through all of this are are sort of hard are are, are coming back not not automatically and not naturally. Um, so that's what I mean. You know, I mean, like I feel like Trump himself was such a disruption, right? And and kind of rewired uh, the way we approach uh, and think about politics. And maybe you know the return of Biden and the kind of like normal blah you know uh, procedural kind of uh, democratic politics that are going on now. It's just like, you know, it's kind of hard to to fully engage in. But I, I'm, I, I'm starting to think that there's something more to it, something broader. And I have some thoughts on that, but I don't know. Any, and do you, do you, do you, does that Look, resonate I mean, with you? It, it does, because I'm afraid of coffee meetings, and I'm sure that people are going to start, um, not that I'm like the most desirable coffee um, interlocutor person imaginable in DC, but you know, it's a normal thing in DC life for people to ask you if maybe they want job advice or, um, they're looking, they're younger and they want to sort of get ahead in their career in the policy world. And you'll have a lot of these coffees. I mean, sometimes, you know, obviously it's a, it's a nice thing to do to help the youngsters. I mean, I remember when I was a youngster, I would just like randomly, cold email important prominent people i think i might have even emailed fukuyama once Mm. when i was like a relative kid Mm. like no but that was a time when you know i was a lot of us i think at that age weren't as self-aware and we were encouraged to be proactive so sometimes you'd have to take a chance and reach out to people and 
oftentimes you were pleasantly surprised that prominent people would respond to you and actually give you the time of day. Anyway, I don't, but I don't like, I don't like a lot of meetings. I think meetings are oftentimes, um, you know, <laughs> not particularly productive or useful. And sometimes you don't even know what the meeting is about. But anyway, I think things like that will be difficult for me to get back into. But also the challenges of small talk. <laughs> I mean, we do that socially, like with our sort of, um, you know, second tier or third tier friends that we've been seeing more. Oops, that's probably mean. No, <laughs> no, I just mean that the people who weren't in like the main COVID group yeah. during like the height of the pandemic, the people who you sort of, you're not close enough to sort of see them on an on an exclusive level where it's like, oh, this is really important. We got to meet up. You just sort of see them on the periphery, but then you have to sort of catch up where it's like, well, how has your life been? You know, and how do you really sum up a year of your life to someone in three minutes or less? I mean, the advantage is that the life has been probably pretty empty, so there's not much to, to summarize in the last well, year. Well, actually, I mean, I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of changes. I mean, changes, but not like, not, not like, I mean, this is sort of what I'm getting at. I think the changes are, are perhaps like these weird psychological ones that are kind of difficult to, to actually, you know, get at. But I mean, I, I think I could summarize in, in, in five sentences what I was up to over the last, uh, over the last 18 months, you know? Yeah, that's true. I guess like one thing that would come up if you're catching up with someone is Trump. And this gets back to the political side. And just before I forget, um, my brother said something really interesting about this. So I'm at home now in uh, Pennsylvania and with my brother and parents. And over dinner the other day, it was really interesting. He said, ever since Trump was voted out of office, he's had a lot of trouble following politics, caring about politics. He's not angry about it. He's not angry about anything or as much things. And, and sometimes that bothers him because obviously there are certain things in the world that are going on that, you know, perhaps demand our outrage. But what was more interesting than that is an anecdote <laughs> that uh, he used to illustrate this where he's like, oh, I don't know anyone in Biden's cabinet. Hmm. Where with Trump, we knew every, like almost every single cabinet member, even the most unimportant ones, like the Minister of Interior. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Secretary of Interior. <laughs> minister. <laughs> das Minister, yeah. <laughs> so like the Minister of Interior under Trump, like I still remember who that is. That was like this Ryan Zinke dude. But no American really knows what the Secretary of the Interior actually does, something about trees or forestry or something. Yeah. But my brother... um he knew a lot of these people and what Betsy DeVos, education secretary, I personally can't recall right now as I'm speaking out loud who the education secretary under Biden is. Yeah. So either. on and so forth. My parents, I don't think, were aware that Tony Blinken, or they wouldn't be able to sort of recall his name on the spot. Everyone knew that Pompeo and before that Tillerson were Trump's secretary of state. So on and so forth. It's really remarkable. I mean, um, you know, Anthony Azar, secretary, um, I think it was, he was, he was one of the secretaries under Trump. Um, Ministers. But, but who, does anyone know who the secretary of labor is under Biden? Probably not. We all knew who the HUD, the housing and urban development secretary was under Trump. Ben Carson, of course. 
I, I don't think there's like maybe 2% of Americans know who it is under Biden. So there's just something interesting that politics became this sport. It was something that you talked about, even if you weren't a very politicized person. I mean, my parents aren't particularly politicized. They care, but they're not people who would normally be aware of different cabinet, uh, cabinet secretaries and so on. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, and I don't go on, I don't use Twitter as much now. Um, I don't, um, I don't know what to be outraged about. I guess I could be outraged about, like now I'm, re- you know, if, if I want to get angry, I'm reduced to getting angry at people who wear masks outside and double, you know, the double mask hardcore people who, you know, I don't want to be mean. Um, but, you know, it seems like it seems a little bit irrational to me. Yeah. And or the woke stuff, I guess I keep on getting angry about the woke stuff, but I don't know if that's the best. And I've always been torn about how outraged or angry to be about cancel culture and wokeness. I think it's a very troubling set of developments. But do I want that to define my anger or define my politics? No. And I think I'm making more of an effort to avoid getting caught in those kinds of, um, you know, important for the people who are in in the sort of firestorm like if you're the one who's canceled obviously it's the most important thing to you but on a broader macro level i don't think it is the number one issue that's facing america today so on and so forth so i think that it's going to be hard i think it's hard for people in the media i don't even know what the networks are doing how do they come up with content what are they talking about did you see that i mean i know you've been really busy i mean that is one of the stories that came out yesterday or the day before like uh CNN and MSNBC are just getting killed right now. Like that's another thing that Trump was right about. They'll they'll totally miss me. He said they'll, they'll all miss me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and they do. Yeah, interesting. So it's been a pretty big drop off. Massive, massive. Uh, wow, yeah, wow. Yeah. And but, but it's interesting. Yeah. You know, just to, to to say one thing. It's interesting you said it like that. What your brother said, and you sort of extended it. Is this idea is like you know something that worthy of my outrage, and uh, you know uh, something that I ought to be outraged about. And there's plenty out there to be outraged about. Meh, I don't know. I'm not sure that's that's necessarily right. You know, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that one ought to perhaps be engaged about, or you know, do stuff about, or want to. I don't know, participate in somehow. I, on the woke stuff, you know. I mean, in many ways, I just feel isolated from it um, in the sense that, like, my current sort of work situation is such that I don't have to, I don't know, like, go through these these weird trainings and, and stuff like that. You know, I, every so often, I, I, you know, I get a glimpse of it through the Internet. Like, Matt Iglesias had this big post about uh, this person, Oaken, and I, I, I read the wow. post and huh. um, just about – the kind of it's a apparently it's a text from this white person <laughs> who has like an anti-racism you know training consultancy kind of like what's the other uh, famous anti-racist white woman um, oh Robin D'Angelo yeah D'Angelo so it's another person called Oaken and apparently you know in a lot of sort of um, the nonprofit space and the NGO space this is like a a text that HR departments are really using a lot. And so Iglesias just ripped, ripped it to shreds as just being completely, you know, outrageously silly. And so it's, it's, that's sort of been like a, a minor thing to watch. And I, I watch that because it has no impact on me right now with like a, a sense of detached, not even bemusement, but almost amusement. But I, I, I do, I do 
I do worry that, you know, at some point I'll have to deal with it. You know, I, I still think, I still hope, in fact, that this will burn itself out because it's so silly uh, before I have to deal with it, before I switch jobs or end up in a place where, that requires, it has like a strong HR department and, and requires this kind of stuff. And, you know, at which point I become more worried about, you know, I don't know, so, my Twitter feed and stuff like that. But but apart from that, I, I'm, I feel generally disengaged from that. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? I mean, look, on, on one hand, you're white, which is a liability. Sure. On the other hand, you're kind of a nihilist. Right. Plus. <laughs> right. <laughs> on the other, um, you're Croatian. Helps. Does it? I don't know how much it helps. Not at You're all. from come the on. Balkans. That was a region that's been through a lot of no, difficulty. Come no, on. come on. The Balkans? Come on. No, you but no one's going to no do that. Come on. I mean, <laughs> seriously. It's good. It's a good idea. I wish it were so. And I like saying that, that you know, uh, uh, yeah, the Slavs are the most oppressed people in Europe. I love saying that. But, of course, it's a, it's a great joke. No one really. Yes. Anyway, go on. Also, you're not necessarily right of center. You're perceived, let's say, as as right right of center. I think you're hard to define. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't be super comfortable putting you on a sort of spectrum plot. But because people perceive you as not being on the left or not being um, like a, a like a Biden liberal, there's less need to cancel you because you're not betraying the tribe. Like the issue that I have. Well, I. I can get away with a lot because I'm brown, but the other the reason I do get attacked a lot, despite being brown, is precisely because I'm betraying my political tribe. So I think, you know, I think with each individual, you have this like weird constellation of factors that makes them more or less cancelable. You could probably come up with a formula for it. Yeah. All, all I'll say to that, though, I mean, you're talking about two different things here. And I mean, and it's two different ways to think about the woke wars, right? Like you're talking about in the frame of public intellectuals and you as, you know, a brown public intellectual writing heterodox things left and right. You get attacked because you're perceived as being on the left. I'm much less famous. I say weird stuff on, on Twitter I'm more easy to ignore, even though I'm white, because, you know, I'm, they, people who know me know I'm a nihilist, so they don't worry about it so much. And people who, you know, whatever, don't know me are just easy to ignore. In any case, that's not the that's not the, the troubling part. The troubling part is, uh, is, for example, I mean, another story, I know, again, to our audience, uh, I know you've been really busy, so maybe you didn't see it, but like the Golden Globes were canceled for next year. What? For a reason that I don't fully understand why. I, I'm not going to even bother Googling right now to find it out, but like some organization, some umbrella organization uh, was uh, denounced by like Amazon and Netflix and a bunch of other things. And now NBC for not being sufficiently diverse enough. So like NBC won't carry the Golden Globes next year. And I saw like Tom Cruise returned his Golden Globe from whenever the hell he got it. Um, so, you know. Wait, Tom Cruise returned it because of what? Because... I don't know, insufficient diversity within this institution that's behind the Golden Globes. Oh, not because they canceled him, like because he was angry that they canceled it for a dumb reason. He's like, I'm done with you guys. No, he's actually supporting. So the only point I want to make, though, like, so that's a a third level. That's just like sort of cultural silliness that's going on and all this like performative stuff. But what I'm getting at is like, let's say, you know, uh, at some point I'm like, well, you know, uh, think tanking and writing has all been good, but what I really want to do is go work at Netflix because I love movies. I don't, but like I love movies and I want to go work for a tech company that does movies. And so I get a job there. And then like 
clearly Netflix has been infected at this point to a level of silliness that they're they're doing this. And I imagine working at Netflix is a deeply unpleasant thing. So I, I find myself in a position that I'm trying to get a job at companies that all of a sudden I have to either I mean, I'm already deleting all my tweets, you know, as a matter of course, after, I don't know, 14, 30 days, whatever, they auto-delete. But, you know, all of a sudden, I find myself in a straitjacket that I didn't before. And that's the that's the level where I I have, like, a sense of unease. I mean, I'm not likely to, I think, find myself in a position that I, I really want to, you know, uh, go into a company that has these kinds of policies. And hopefully, knock on wood, I'll, I'll not find myself in a position before the silliness burns itself out. But that's the the level of woke stuff that does give me some unease, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Certainly working for a corporation and having a quote-unquote normal job where, I mean, woke woke capital or, or has become a new thing. A number of articles have been written about it. Um, and I think that's one way for corporations to actually deflect concerns about massive inequality is that they get woke on the surface level performative stuff. And that's a way to just get people off your back without actually addressing structural issues. So it's very smart for them. And obviously, it makes um, makes for a more difficult workplace for non-wokes um, in, in corporations that are otherwise <laughs> destructive and not helping the world. But one thing I would take issue with, Demir, is when you said there aren't a lot of things to be outraged or angry about. I think there are outside of the U.S. I think, I think, um, and uh, well, there, I'm sure there are, there are also things to be outraged, presumably here in the U.S. I mean, it's not as if systemic racism ended just because Biden was elected, Demir. Uh, there's a really good John McCorder essay uh, came out yesterday, I think, that just says why you should not use that word ever again. And I, I, oh. I, I from now on, I reject systemic racism as a, as a phrase. I've always felt that way. I think it's, wow. it's a nonsense, but okay. I think he makes the most cogent argument for why it is not just a stupid idea, even though it's like an idea with a pedigree that may have meant something at some point, that it's now actively toxic to even talk in those terms. So I, I, wow. I, I encourage our, our readers, our listeners to, uh, to give John's essay a read. But uh, go on, Shadi. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because I, uh, I, you know, I've, I use it occasionally and I've been um, – anyway, we don't have to go into that. But um, uh, abroad, but, you were saying. But I want to get. I do want to get back to the workplace stuff because I think there's some interesting stuff there. But go on. What's what's what's? I mean, apart from Israel Palestine, which I don't think we should get into right now. It's it's <laughs> it's mid mid episode, and it'll take us down all sorts of byways. That you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, that would have been one of the things on my mind. Um, the but Uyghurs I, clearly, you know. Yeah, but that that hasn't necessarily been been in the news recently. I, no. I think, but obviously, we should be like perpetually outraged about it. But it's hard to ask people to be to like live up to a certain level of outrage about something that unfortunately has gone on for several years and probably will be going on for the foreseeable future. Well, I, there was a story again uh, that, that uh, whatchamacallit, uh, we're getting blood iPhones. I think like a lot of the components that are, I, I saw some, a couple of stories saying that like, you know, the supply chain, Apple supply chain may be oh. running through slave camps. So blood iPhones. There's Damn. something. D- Demir, apparently all Demir does is uh, read news articles I mean, about current events that I'm not aware of. Uh, uh, something like that, but go on. <laughs> the other thing that I had been following is, you know, the, uh, the death rate in India and the funeral pyres and just like the sense of um, the collapse of a, of a society 
and the images, um, because one of the few things I do still do occasionally is go to the New York Times homepage. It's one of those habits that I can't quite get myself out of. There's something, you know, therapeutic about, um, you know, it's also an interesting thing to see what they decide to prioritize. So when the Israel-Palestine stuff happened the other day, I was seeing from people I knew on Instagram and on Twitter a lot of anger from, especially from, uh, you know, left left folks, Arabs, Muslims, and and human rights community, and so on. But I was surprised that I went on the New York Times homepage, and I literally couldn't find anything about um, whatever you want to call them, the clashes. Although I think calling these clashes is, is itself problematic for reasons we don't have to go into right now, because I, you know, I do think there is an aggressor and an aggressee in this particular case. But it was interesting to me that I that I didn't really see. It was hard for me to figure out what was going on because it wasn't really being, um, you had to go deep into the New York Times. Anyway, on the specific case of India and COVID, that was um, that was being highlighted as one of the, ma- the main stories for several days. So I was following that. And I think there are things to get worked up about and angry about when it comes to vaccine access in less developed countries. I don't know a lot about it. I don't know how to actually address that, but I can imagine someone who's focused on that really feeling that something has gone wrong here where there is a glut of vaccine supply, but we're not able to get those vaccines to the to the people who need it most today. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I mean, but- you're, just, you're, you're just prompting me to say unpleasant things. I mean, I, I, I'm <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. I it, that's the, maybe the thing that, that that bothers me least. I mean, it's a, clearly a tragedy, but but uh, I don't know. I I don't think I don't think that there's uh, you know all the reporting I've seen about the, uh, the Biden administration's calculus on not releasing uh, our stockpiles yet sound perfectly reasonable to me. And any claims like higher moral claims about human solidarity across the planet strike me as completely hollow. I mean, so I I, I I've 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 stopped myself from from <laughs> tweeting such things at least three times in the last week because it just it's 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 unpleasant to 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 say but but i've seen no argument yet apart from kind of you know very loose bleeding heart stuff and it is it's horrible it's it's horrible that 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 in fact uh you know uh the planet is deeply unequal and as a result such things happen but you know uh short short of crying about it i don't i don't really know what what else to say and i'll just say as a, a little aside there uh, when you said like you go to the new york times and and you know the, the images of the funeral pyres i the thing that jumped in my head is that like i never I, I don't watch tv anymore so i don't watch the news i don't get that stuff and almost never um apart from you know i i saw that clip that was going around everywhere the sort of israeli far-right uh fascists dancing uh in jerusalem as you know uh Al-Aqsa, some, some tree in the background burns or something like that. Apart from things like that that seep through, I don't, like, you know, if I go to the New York Times uh, or any of these things, I never, ever click on slideshows or images or any of that. Like, I just read the text. I even have gotten to the habit now of just, when I go to these places, to just give me that, because it makes it load faster and it's more efficient, like, use that feature either on my iPhone, the iPad, or the, you know, my, my desktop machine to just like strip out everything. So I just have text. I see no images, you know? Um, and maybe that's another part of that, like, you know, dehumanizes me in so many ways. But I think there's something also really 
incredibly manipulative about about the sort of the, the use of the image, images, and especially when a when well, a when a when a bleeding heart like irresponsibly bleeding heart publication. Uh, like the New York Times gets a hold of images and then starts sort of weeping about stuff. I just like it's it's garbage. Well, we're seeing Demir's dark side today. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but you know what they also say? Go ahead. A picture is equal to a thousand words. I'd rather read a thousand. Words. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm not a, I'm not an image person either. Like I don't. I'm not on TikTok. I don't understand the idea of just like watching videos on your phone a lot. I find it to be time consuming or a YouTube video where someone is talking about something. I can skim a transcript or read something very quickly. Also, I mean, uh, I'm not like a 100% speed reader by any means, but if I really put my mind to it, I can sort of skim a book relatively quickly. Mm. Um, I can't really do that. It's hard to do that with a video. So I just find in terms of efficiency because you know we're also getting to a point in our lives where you know i think we should value time more um you know with each with each um minute day or year that we live that is a minute a day or a year lost in the broader sweep of our lives and i think you know being a little bit more purposeful about time is one thing that i want to get out of the covid era where um, not I, I don't want to be too good when it comes to time management because I think there's sort of an an um, an over prioritization of efficiency in American culture. We always feel like we need to be doing something and getting something done, and that's probably not healthy. But there is this kind of middle ground where you're more purposeful about the blocks of time that you have. And I don't think videos or images, well, I guess an image you don't have to like watch. You can just look at it and then you're done. But yeah. certainly if they're moving images, that can take longer. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I guess, you know, maybe I should just like put a coda to my to my nastiness earlier there. I'm open to the argument uh, about vaccinating the world, about um, the dangers of letting, uh, uh, you know, strains develop uh unchecked in corners of the world and that that will uh at some point perhaps punch through our defenses and that that's a danger um and i do think you know insofar that is a medium-term threat um we should be concentrating our minds on how to vaccinate the world you know i mean again just to to be fair on that the the part is like that triggered me and it was what you said was about this idea that you know like something to be outraged about the fact that that, uh, you know, um, the world is not getting vaccinated. I, I, I think that's, 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 in fact, not, I mean, it's something to be sad about. Um, yeah, maybe outrage to, isn't, the, isn't the right word. Maybe it's something to be dispirited about or despondent yeah, about sure. or resigned about. I think the Biden administration is doing it right right now. I, I just put that very clearly. And, you know, it's like I, I saw there was a, I was just trying to find it because this was, I was about to tweet it this morning, then I, I, I thought better of it. Um, uh, was was in fact it was a quote from Ed Luce's column um, that uh, you know he said uh, that, uh, though Biden denies there's any U.S. embargo in practice there is he may hit his target of inoculating seventy percent of Americans by the July Fourth holiday should America's roughly fifty million or so vaccine hesitants be a bigger priority than the five billion adults around the world who have no choice. Yes, yes, they should. Uh, I think that's it's an open and close case for me. Like that, that, that this kind of like you know uh, uh, 
basically philosophy class ethics question, um, it's 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 silly and irrelevant to be asking it. But is that really what the dilemma is? Because I agree that if it's about um, we should have fifty million more doses on hand for the 50 million or so Americans who are hesitant because there is a chance they might change their minds and we should continue working on that. And, you know, this might be very controversial in some quarters, but I am I do believe that <laughs> a government has to prioritize its own citizens. Obviously. I mean, you know, what's interesting is that, like, I think to many of us that might seem banal and, and obvious. I think I know some people who would find that to be rather controversial. But anyway, they probably don't listen to the podcast and if they do just you know um uh you know write a comment or something yeah be angry but like you're wrong basically anyway go on yeah but i i don't think that's is that really the issue because i think there there is much more supply than demand even if we take into account people who are on the fence um i think my understanding is that there there is room to work there um I could be wrong, and I, I don't want to sort of um, pontificate about something I haven't been following closely, but um, if we had ec- extra in the sense that we have a lot, and even if, we, um, even if we're focused on our own people, we can still do more. I assume there are things that we could do more of if we had the political will to do so. I don't know what are, what are the obstacles there, but presumably something can be done. And maybe this is sort of the interventionist in me talking that if I see a humanitarian disaster, I don't know what should be done, but I think something should be done. I believe, I believe that steps are being taken to, you know, like get rid of all of our AstraZeneca, you know, again, um, it's not like nothing is being done. I just, I, 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 I recoil at this, this, oh, the humanity, you know, uh, bleeding heart stuff i I, yeah and i and i I don't think that the biden administration is dragging its feet being irresponsible any of that like again most of the reporting i've seen on it most of the arguments uh you know for like we must do something now not now yesterday those are in particularly bad faith i think but anyway again i i i haven't been that deep into the story to to have more than that as an argument and you know if people want to to comment angrily by all means uh you know amuse yourselves but um uh you know just to to get back to this this question um that we sort of started at this like this this hmm. disorienting feeling um you know what's what's been stuck in my head basically since we published it uh i don't know is it two months ago now a month and a half ago when we kicked off the the democracy essays and our friend Osita. Uh, wrote his essay about democracy and democratization. It was uh, it was his claim that um, you know, like what should you know, I don't think he made the strong claim. I think he gestured at it towards the end. I didn't I didn't go back and read it before we started recording. But it's it's been stuck in my head this idea that that you know the next frontier of democracy and democratization is the workplace. And you know it's it's one of those things that that it strikes me. What I was saying earlier about like going back to the workplace and, and feeling kind of disoriented about it, this weird feeling we have now of, you know, laboring under the reality of Trump and the kind of like weird control he had over over our psyches and how we were like obsessed with that. And now with Biden sort of we're less engaged there. I, I, I do wonder I do wonder if something's going to shift and there's evidence that, that it's already shifting, tied to a lot of this woke stuff as well, 
that like people will are are less willing to um well i don't know countenance the fact that the workplace has never been democratic there's no such thing as true democracy in the workplace so there hasn't been of course there have been efforts you know through unionization and stuff like that to to bring balance to what has always been a you know top-down sort of thing to to democratize these things but but I, i'm starting to think that that maybe there's a change coming to that um and I, i'm not sure it's a good change in fact i'm 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 i'm, I'm disquieted by it uh but that this is maybe somehow seeping into the workplace. Have you have you have you thought about that at all? Have you has that like hit you at all in your your you know your experiences at work or just in general that that might be coming and what that might mean? Interesting. I haven't thought much about it. Um I tend to see companies, corporations, jobs, job workplaces in general as authoritarian by design yeah that um it's hard to run a corporation that's trying to maximize profit without having i mean it would be hard i guess there are shareholders but um but they're not employees C- usually they're right? not employees of course yeah. yeah so ceos have you know a wide latitude to do what they wish and that's also um, the case for nonprofit. So it's not even just about um, profit motive necessarily. That's just how things are run. Um, you know, the NGOs that I'm familiar with, you ha- usually have an executive director, even if, you know, it could be small, medium, whatever. But ultimately, the executive director has final say over pretty much uh, all major issues. The board of directors can sometimes step in, but that's generally frowned upon. There's one board that I'm on, and I don't think we've really ever tried to stop our executive director from doing something that just wouldn't really be seen as our purview. It's more of a, a guidance and advisory role. So, I mean, I think it's odd to think of a workplace as uh, relying on the consent of the the governed. In this case, it wouldn't be the governed. The consent of the employed. Um, it seems, but they are governed. It, I mean, I think it's, it's the a governed, good thing yes, to say are. it is. It yes. is the consent okay. of the governed because yeah. they're being governed by by their bosses, really, right? But they've also they're also being um, paid. So Correct. I think there's something different. A citizen is a citizen without really having to do anything in, in particular. You know, we're born American. We are American. Um, it's not part of some kind of exchange where we're benefiting financially. I think if you make the conscious choice to be in a workplace, there's an understanding that you you serve a specific purpose and you get paid in return. It's not it's not a relationship of rights and obligations the way a nation is. Yeah, true, but let me just push you before you even go on that a little bit, right? I mean, it's not like uh, citizens existing. Uh, outside of their will, and I mean, you have you know the the argument made from the sort of labor left that in fact you have no choice but to work. Now you you know in a plural society with with more than one employer, you have options. You can switch. So there's some level of freedom there, which arguably you don't as a citizen of an authoritarian country. But it's not like you are not recompensed. There's not like there is no social contract in an authoritarian society. It's just a very different social contract than the liberal social contract people would say. It's basically um, – it's kind of, you know, uh, at its most functional, authoritarian uh, systems 
operate kind of like technocracies and have output legitimacy of sorts, right? It's in the sense that, that, that they provide security, they provide a certain level of service, they provide order, and citizens are therefore uh, discouraged from revolting and are acquiesced to the governance of that kind of authoritarian system. So output output legitimacy exists, right? And yeah. uh, so that's, I mean, if you wanted to really draw the connection, there's a kind of payment there uh, for to members, to citizens of an authoritarian um, uh, society, right? Except authoritarian regimes aren't necessarily great at output legitimacy. No. I mean, it, it's a theoretical argument about what authoritarian regimes at least in their own minds, are meant to do. That's how they justify their own existence. But I take your point that there is, I, I, it's, but it's not a bargain that individual citizens have signed on to. It's one that's imposed upon them without any, without any choice. And I think what, at least the workplace, as I understand it in the U.S., there is considerable choice. Um, right. Uh, and and more choice actually than most European democracies in terms of. Um, a labor, uh, flexibility in the labor market and so on. Uh, it's interesting. I haven't really thought thought about these analogies in in detail. Um, I haven't noticed. I have not noticed that it's a growing space for argumentation. Well, so so let me give you the example. Then I mean, this was this you almost certainly wouldn't have caught because I don't know. I I, I used to. And I still sort of follow tech world because I find it interesting. But but this one tech company called Basecamp, um, and they're they're very successful medium sized company, um, medium sized by business. I think they're very small, like a lot of these tech companies in terms of uh, number of employees. I think they're under a hundred or something. Uh, but it's a it's one of these sort of um, you know uh, web based uh, productivity type of suites that allows for I don't know. It's it's a it's a whole su- suite of products for businesses in any case. Um, sweet, yeah, sweet. <laughs> and uh, they they had a they had a real blow up recently because um, a lot of the 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 politics of the moment uh, were starting to basically um, get into their slacks uh, and other like internal communications and um, uh, you know uh, the employees were getting agitated and. Um, you know, starting to demand stuff. So they banned political discussion internally at the office, which led to an absolute uh, uprising. I think they lost half their employees um, Wow! Uh, with a quit and whatever, and they had to apologize. They, they did one of these like, sorry, not sorry. And then I've sort of lost track of the story because I think it, it fell out of people are not reporting on it anymore. But um, it was a real employee uh, revolt. Um, at what was a, I would say, reasonable, from my perspective, normal management decision. But, you know, it's only reasonable and normal if you assume, as I do, that it's reasonable and normal that a private company is run in authoritarian ways um, over the wills of its employees. And at the end, I mean, it, it basically turned out that way, is that, you know, they a lot of these people left and, you know, uh, the management said, sorry, to see you go and, you know, we wish it weren't so and we'll try and do better and communicate better. Like I said, I think there was like a sorry, not sorry element to how they apologized in the end. But it's interesting to me that that like that's that like that really pricked my ears up about this like, you know, this this democratizing mode and movement 
And I'm just connecting it a little bit to, I wonder if a lot of our sort of expectations about how politics and society should work and did work before COVID are now just being disrupted. Because, you know, I mean, part of what allows um, the kind of uh, authoritarian model of management in the private sector or even the, you know, the nonprofit, so, you know, the, the, non, the non, non-political sphere um, is a certain kind of acquiescence to it. It's, it's a certain kind of normalcy to it. Like, it's what we expect. But what, is, what happens if, like, you know, we now come back to our offices after been, having granted a whole lot of freedom, actually? I mean, you know, we've been enslaved in so many ways by COVID and, and the restrictions about not being able to do this, that, and the other thing. But in fact, in the, in the, in the relationship to work, it's, it's, a, it's a new world and, and a new sort of attitude that we've maybe developed to it. Like, we have a lot more personal autonomy, and we're doing a lot more communication in these sorts of, um, um, you know, digital channels. And, you know, wor- workers, uh, employees are, are organizing around that. And conversations that might have happened between, like, me and you at the water cooler are now taking place in slacks where everyone can participate – and then management says, like, no, this is not okay. And they're like, no, fuck you, right? I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's striking to me that, like, I feel like something's changing and it's changing as a result of – in weird ways that are kind of unpredictable as a result of the last 18 months. Hmm. Thesis, anyway. I don't know if it's true. I, I can buy that. I mean, I do get a sense that some of the youngsters have a different conception of work at the workplace, and the whole Slack culture is something I'm not familiar with. I only started using Slack for, well, actually, for our secret reading group. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that doesn't really count. That's not like a job. That's just like a fun thing that we all voluntarily do. Yeah. So I don't really have a great sense of, first of all, why people would be very active. On a Slack channel, it seems like an odd way to use up your time. But again, I think that what I've been surprised about during the pandemic is the very odd personal choices when it comes to how people prioritize their lives Mm. and how they prioritize things, which to me do not seem to be um, the most important things. Um, Sort of these irrational behaviors that I associate with COVID uh, hardliners, but I think it's applied to a number of other things that if people have pent up anger or they don't have an outlet for their emotions um, because they've been hunkered down and all that, you find you find that these emotions are expressed in unpredictable ways. I mean, that's always the concern when you have any kind of suppression. Um, obviously, the suppression in this case is not an authoritarian suppression. It's something that most Americans and most citizens generally decided to go along with with limited um, with limited backlash, at least in most parts of the country. So, but so I but I do think there 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 are questions about um, how how people sort of channel these pent up emotions, and we're going to see we're going to see more evidence. I mean, I think there's also a lag time effect. That it's not just that people had these pent up emotions during the pandemic, but that we're going to see um, iterations of this well after we've we've reopened fully, where people are sort of acclimating, as we talked about earlier, and that could lead to something we talked about in a prior episode, where 
Um, will this lead to an uptick in protests, anger, a kind of belated anger at governments that didn't do well on COVID, including in Europe? I mean, Europe is, is going to start reopening soon, it seems. But will people, like once, they, once they're out and about, they'll say to themselves, well, um, our government really mismanaged this and we lost months of our lives and they weren't letting us do anything for very dubious scientific reasons, for non-scientific reasons. That's going to be, I think, the real test. And I think it applies to the workplace question, too, is are we going to see this coming era as an era of tumult? Yeah, yeah. I have a feeling it might be, you know, like not necessarily in the same way of, you know, uh, that like justice and injustice are motivating it or not in the sort of like theoretical way of, you know, or not even theoretical. I mean, let me rephrase that. Like, I don't I don't think it's 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 outrage necessarily at broader social injustices that will be driving part of this stuff. I think maybe the tumult will be broader in the sense that 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 um that a lot of the assumptions uh, about how we were before that we very generally took for granted just maybe don't hold. I guess that's my instinct on this. And that, that as you said, it'll, be, it'll, it'll express itself in, in, in surprising ways, in ways that, that, like, that, that we, we, you know, we sit around – on this podcast and stroke our chins and, and, and try and predict some of these things or try and point at, at, at trends as where they're going. Um, but I, I think they'll erupt in ways exactly like this, this workplace thing. It, that's why it really captured my imagination. It's like, what, you know, what, what exactly is going on here? You know, it's like a, it's a weird conflation of remote work of this kind of, um, very broad, like, you know, social current, which we describe as, as woke righteousness. Um, but also, you know, pointing at, at a convention that we have, um, that, you know, which is how we organize the workplace, uh, which I hasten to add, I think is the more efficient way. I mean, this goes back to the whole sort of, you know, moral dimension of democracy and, and, and individual autonomy versus efficiency, right? I mean, I, 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 I personally don't find authoritarianism. I, I don't like applying moral categories to these things for this very reason, because I, I think, you know, we live with authoritarian structures all the time. We just don't notice it. And so we don't get outraged about it. So it's just interesting that some of these things that really should be normal, and I think are, you know, a, perhaps at least have proven themselves to be uh, a good way to organize things are now coming under attack. I don't know what to make of it, you know? Well, one difference is I don't believe it's the job of governments or states to be efficient. So it's it's a question of what the purpose of particular institutions are. I do think um, companies have to be efficient. If, you know, as long as we've all agreed to live in a capitalist society, that matters. Even nonprofits have to be efficient because they still deal with money. They still have to... Um, have outcomes for donors and so on. I don't think, and this is where I think the technocratic premise, the idea that governments should do what what works, what I've sometimes called what worksism, mm. that it oftentimes betrays an authoritarian impulse because if your goal is efficiency, democracy is not necessarily the best way to achieve it, and then you start falling back on unaccountable and unelected bureaucracies that are able to sort of supersede the popular will. 
And that's why I've always been suspicious of technocrats or whenever I hear people talking about, well, how can we make government work better or uh, be more efficient or, you know, all these things that I don't consider to be the main purpose of democracy. I mean, that's obviously a bigger issue that we've sort of, you know, we've we've always talked about this to one degree or another. Yeah. Um, I just see a fundamental difference between corporations and governments. This is also one reason I think if we sort of reverse the, the, the arrow that I'm suspicious uh, uh, that whenever businessmen or, or, um, or people who um, have been in a tech space for a long time want to then be in politics and their whole pitch is, I'm, I'm going to get things done for you, which is sort of what Trump did as someone who was, you know, actually a successful businessman, whatever else we think about his businesses. And, you know, of course, he's going to have an authoritarian personality. Is it possible to kind of come as an outsider businessman, politician, and not have that be part of your appeal? And, you, you know, you, you heard people say this, well, oh, um, you know, maybe he can govern he can govern America like a business and, you know, get things in order. Um, and that's not, well, first of all, like apparently even those people who are good businessmen, they find that governments are fundamentally different and so on. But I think there is a bigger question here about what are the goals of government? Oh, I mean, absolutely. One, two, Trump was not a very good businessman, just more <laughs> of a huckster. But, but like, but, but, but three. I, I, I still just want to draw one important distinction. When people say make government work better, um, I mean they, they they may mean all sorts of things. But there there are there is there is governing, and there is democratic legitimacy to you know uh, that is imparted to a government. But then there's bureaucracy, and again, bureaucracy is not in any sense democratic. And to manage a bureaucracy is not a democratic process. I mean, again, you have these sorts of feedback loops and you want to be able to, I think, in, in best management practice to, you know, uh, delegate uh, uh, to people closest to the problem and most able to sort of, you know, tackle it most efficiently. I mean, again, these are these are management things that, that you know, have been kicked around for a long time. This is none of it's it's shouldn't be rediscovering the wheel on this. It's just fundamentally important to to note that it's it's not democratic. That that democracy and democratic legitimacy exists on a different plane altogether and it feels like it's bleeding in right now. That's all. That's the only point I want to That's fair. Make. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. makes sense to me. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, I guess since we're ending this episode, I'll maybe use this opportunity to say thanks to Wisdom of Crowds listeners and and readers. And just to remind you all, uh, since you're probably the diehards, if you've gotten to the very end of the episode, that um, as you've probably seen, we got a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. We've been doing the Friday essay where Demir and I alternate essays each week. And that's for subscribers only. So if you want to get a little weekly taste of our wisdom... Well, that sounds weird. Um, you should consider subscribing uh, for $5 a month at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. And, you know, we'd appreciate your support as we're trying to build out what we do. Um, Demir, any final thoughts? Um, no, not right now, I don't think. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, for <laughs> subscribing. And thank you, Shadi, for being the chief marketing officer, as always. Yes. Um, so, yeah. See you guys next time. Later, Demir. Bye, Bye, everyone.